Alrighty, we are in Hebrews chapter 7 this morning. If your neck hurts from Matt teaching, I'm just going to stay right put in the center. I'm not even going to move, so no pacing, no following me back and forth, none of that junk. Um, So a few weeks ago, I stressed the importance of, you know, we need to grow up in maturity in the faith. We need to get off drinking milk and start eating big boy food. Um, And we're about to figure out why that text is in Hebrews, because it's setting us up to get into chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, which are kind of like, if you have the book of Hebrews, the heart of it, the theological doctrinal heart is in these four chapters, 7 through 10 of Hebrews. And they are, they're not impossible to understand. It just takes work to get there. Um, And so we're going to work in Sunday school. We're going to put the school part in this. So uh, whenever you come to a biblical text, usually you want to go through three kind of phases. There's handouts, a couple piles of them floating around. I have like eight subpoints to point one, so you probably want one of those if you don't have them. So you kind of go through three phases of interpreting a Bible text. Everyone has them. Great. All right, so we're going to want to look at what the text says. So what, what are the actual words, the themes, the sentences, all of that? You're going to look at, okay, why is that significant? Like, why does it matter that what we have here is here? And then we look at, Okay, now that we know the significance of the text, what does it mean for us? What's the application? So you're going to look at the history, the theology, and the application. Or maybe you would say, we're going to look at what is there, the so what, why is it important, and the now what, what do I do in light of this? If you're uh, training in the Word participant, I think the categories Jeff uses is what's it say to them then, what's a theological reflection, and what's it say to us now? Um, Hebrews 7 helps me teach this really well because it breaks into three nice sections of here's the history, the them then, here's the theological significance, and here's the application. So like half of my work in this lesson was already done by the author of Hebrews. Um, so we're going to look at Hebrews' account of Melchizedek and his significance in chapter 7 through these three lenses that the author gives us. Uh, just a couple logistical notes before I get into the text here. This is part one of a two-part lesson in chapter 7. And it's a bit more technical, a bit more academic. It's not difficult. It's just, it's going to be a little more thinking and reading than maybe we're used to in Sunday school. Um, But somebody said, when you come to the Bible, you can either rake the ground, and when you rake, it's pretty easy, but you get leaves. Or you can dig. Digging takes work, but if you dig, sometimes you find diamonds. So, you know, we're going to go and search for all the treasure we can find. It's going to be work and digging, but it's going to be worth it. So I'm going to read the whole chapter of Hebrews chapter 7. I think we'll get into through about verse 11 today, and then we'll go 12 through 28 next week. But I'll just read it all so that we have an idea of the context. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham apportioned a tenth part, and to him 
Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are also descendants from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, one might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what farther need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change of the priesthood, there is necessarily a change of the law as well. For one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning his bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on one hand, the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So when we get into this text, I, I have three goals for this lesson. Um, first, I want to show you how the author of Hebrews, how the Bible interprets the Old Testament and how the Bible reads the Old Testament. I think um, 
maybe we're all comfortable saying like, yes, the whole Bible points us to Jesus. The whole Bible is one story about Jesus. But then we get into a chapter like Genesis 14 and we're like, so I believe the Bible is about Jesus. I have no idea how the Bible is about Jesus here. So I want to show you how our author of Hebrews gets from Genesis 14 through the Psalms to Jesus Christ so that we can read the Bible in a similar way. So we're going to spend a little bit more time in the Old Testament than, than typically in Hebrews. Second, I want you to worship God because of the greatness of his wisdom and his plan and the greatness of Christ, which is more point two and three, which we'll get to next week, but we'll start getting there today. And then third, I want you to see the inferiority of the law or the superiority of Christ, that Christ is greater than the law and everything that goes with the law, so that you would see the greatness of Christ and thus cling to him, that you would not run away from Christ, but that you would stay holding on to him. So let's dive in here and we'll, we'll do some work. So we'll start with the history or the what, what's the text saying or the them then kind of category. So we see the history of Melchizedek in verses 1 through 10, as well as things that we can observe about Melchizedek from Genesis 14, where he's mentioned. So let me give you the summary of the history, which we get in the first one and a half verses. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So we're likely not familiar with this story, right? Slaughter of the kings, did anybody do that for devotions this morning? Sue, <laughs> so have we got there in Sunday school yet? <laughs> like, how, how are we doing with, with junior church? Okay, Genesis 14. Flip back there, like I said. You can hold up your Bible and do a sword drill if you want to, or you can just, you know, quietly in your seat go Genesis 14. Genesis 14 describes the slaughter of the kings which Hebrews 7 references. When I say kings, also don't think like the king of France or the king of England. Think more like a tribal leader, um, an army of like 300 quasi-trained men, not so much, you know, the, the most mighty warriors, but an able-bodied man. I would be enlisted in the army and I would have, you know, very little to contribute. But, you know, I'm a 30-year-old guy, so... I'm there. Um, so we're talking not so much King of England. We're talking the mayor of Wald Lake and the mayor of Farmington Hills getting together to, to wage war. So in Genesis 14, we have this battle. We have five kings against four. We see this in Genesis 14.8. So I, I put them up there. I don't know if you actually care on the far left. It's probably too small for you to see. But our allies in this battle are going to be the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela. And then Moses gives us this parenthetical remark. If you don't know where Bela is, it's Zoar. So hopefully that's helpful to you. That was incredibly helpful to me. The enemies then are the four kings, Chidoleomer of Elam, Tidal of Goyim, Amraphel of Shinar, and Ariaka of Elisar. So they, these nine kings, the five versus the four, they meet up in the Valley of Siddam, and the four kings defeat the five. And because of their victory, then they take all of the animals and all of the, the valuables, and they take those as their treasure, and they take the people as slaves. And you're like, okay, so we have nine pagan kings. What does this have to do with the story of Genesis? Well, if you remember, 
we have the king of Sodom here, and Lot is living in Sodom at the time. Lot is Abraham's nephew. And so Lot gets taken away with the slaves by Chilo Leomer and his friends, and one of the soldiers escapes to tell Abraham. So we'll pick up there in verse 13. Um, I'm going to read Genesis 13 through 17, and then we'll skip down and continue 21 through 24. We'll just ignore 18 through 20 for now. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eskel and Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and brought back all his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Chedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. Jump to 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourselves. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eskel, and Mamre take their share. So Abram grabs his 318 able-bodied men. They sneak up on these four kings, and then they defeat them by night. He brings back all of the possessions and all of the people that they took as slaves. And so on his way back, they stop by Sodom. The king of Sodom comes out, and he says, Okay, you can keep all the goods. Just give me back my people. Which sounds super generous. If you were a mercenary in that day, that is, you fought battles for money, the general agreement was you would sneak up on the four kings. You would be able to take all of the money and the gold and the livestock and the treasures that you got. That was your payment for being a mercenary. And you would just give back the, the people that were taken as slaves to their original king. So this is a very traditional offer that the king of Sodom makes. Um, you know, you, you give me my people, you keep the possessions. But Abraham refused, saying, no, because I don't want anyone to say that the reason Abram is rich is because the king of Sodom made him rich. I'm not going to give you that credit of making me a rich man. So, like, you can't tell my allies what to do. Like, they can take their share or they can leave it. I have fed my men. Like, they're going to eat. We have to feed our soldiers. So I'm keeping that. But anything that's left over that I would take home that I would, you know, spend on Amazon tonight for Christmas presents, like, that's going back to the king of Sodom. I'm just taking Lot home and I'm leaving. So what does this have to do with Melchizedek? Seemingly absolutely nothing, which is why it's important. This story is a wonderful narrative without verses 18 through 20 in it. But when you're reading a narrative account, one thing that you want to look for is the things that don't make sense, that stand out, that are kind of intrusions into the story. So you, you, you know this. Everybody watches some sort of detective show on TV right now, whether it's CSI or CSI Miami or CSI Anchorage or NCIS or cops or whatever it is. Like, when the police are in a crime scene, what are they doing? They're looking for things that don't make sense. 
that picture on the wall is a little bit sideways. Maybe there's something hiding behind it. Why is the air conditioner running in the middle of December? Is it trying to cover up a noise to hide something? You know, Scooby-Doo looks for things that are weird and finds significance in them. We do the same thing in narrative. We look for things that don't fit and we say there must be significance to this. One theologian would call these these intrusions into the story. So look at the part of this story that doesn't fit then. I'll start it in verse 17 for context, and then we'll read 18 through 20, which we skipped. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, uh, Genesis 14, verse 17 still, we're hitting those three verses that we skipped. The king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king's valley, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. So we have this mysterious figure who just kind of pops up for three verses, He feeds Abram, he blesses Abram, Abram gives him a tenth of the spoils, and then he disappears from history. He's not brought up again in the history of the Bible. Um, So what in the world do we make of this guy who, he intrudes into the story, we know that he has to be important, but like, what in the world is he there for? Let me make eight observations about Melchizedek. And these are the ones that the author of Hebrews is making in uh, 7, 2 through 10. So I don't know if you want to stay in Genesis or you can flip back to Hebrews 7. Maybe you should buddy up with your neighbor. One of you stay in Genesis, the other flip to Hebrews. You can figure out how to do this. Because in this first section, the author of Hebrews is basically teaching us, here's how we read Genesis 14. Um, And so I'm going to be referencing both chapters. Also, maybe you noticed this already. So, in the story of Genesis, we have Abram, and then Genesis 15, his name gets switched to Abraham. So, when we're reading Genesis 14, it's Abram. However, the author of Hebrews is talking about his faith, so he's giving him this name of faith, talking about Abraham. Um, So, we have Abram in Genesis, Abraham in Hebrews. My mind works to the level where I get my daughter's name and my cat's name mixed up. So if you expect me to keep these straight, like, it's not going to happen. Don't even hope for this. I'm not going to be consistent. If I say Abram or Abraham, I'm talking about the same guy. I'm using them interchangeably just because I can't keep them straight. So eight obser- observations about Melchizedek. We'll start with the basic ones. Number one, Melchizedek is a king of righteousness. We see that in 7 verse 2. So if you were to break down the Hebrew, Melech means king, Tzaddik means righteousness. You shove them together, Melchizedek. His name means king of righteousness, which kind of stands out against nine battling warrior kings who are just selfish and trying to get treasure. He's the king of righteousness. But second, he's also the king of peace. Salem is the city he's king of. He's king of Salem. And Salem comes from the word shalom, or peace. Um, So again, it stands out against the wars. We have a king of peace now joining the nine. 
So Salem is a common city name. Everybody wants a peaceful town. No one's like, I want to live in the town of cantankerous people. Like it, we want to live in a town filled with peace. Um, and so there was a bunch of Salem's back then. There still are a bunch of Salem's. You have Salem, Massachusetts. I think there's Salem, Oregon, or Washington, somewhere out on the west side as well. Um, and so we can't be 100% certain, but given the geography that we have listed of Dan and the other places, the closest Salem that we know of to this place in Genesis would later be named Jerusalem. So it's very likely that that Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem before it was named Jerusalem. Number three, Melchizedek is not just a king. He's a priest of God Most High. We see this in Hebrews 7.1. We'll come back to this later, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it. All right, now we get into the difficult ones. The first three were easy. Now we're going to do some work. Number four, Melchizedek has no genealogy. We see this Hebrews 7.3. He's with father, without father or mother or genealogy, which is not to say Melchizedek was never born, right? He, he was born at some point, but the text of Genesis never records his genealogy, which is significant because anyone who is anyone in the book of Genesis has a genealogy listed. So, you know, it's coming up on the new year. January 1st, you're going to start your Bible reading plan. You're going to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3. January 2nd, you're going to get into Genesis 4, and that's about when you're going to stop your Bible plan for the year because you get to Genesis 4, 18, right? To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahushalal, and Mahushalal fathered Methushalal, and Methushalal fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain, he was the forger of instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. We were familiar with these genealogies all through the Old Testament. So that's Genesis 4. Then Genesis 5, we have a genealogy leading up to Noah. We have the account of the flood. And then after the flood, we have a genealogy in chapter 11 of how Noah got to the Tower of Babel. We have the account of the Tower of Babel. Then we have a genealogy of how Babel got us to Abraham. Abram. Every single person of significance in the book of Genesis has a genealogy. We know their father. We know their lineage, except for Melchizedek. So uh, there's other people in the book who don't have a genealogy. We don't have a genealogy of any of our nine kings. But um, D.A. Carson has said, these guys know well enough not to be significant. Anyone who is significant has a genealogy listed. So we either say, well, apparently Melchizedek's not significant, or we have a glaring silence here. And given you know, what we already said about him being an intrusion, we know he's important. So this, this silence of his genealogy is going to prove to be significant. It's not like Moses just you know, forgot his Ancestry.com password as he's writing Genesis 14. It's like, well, not important. I'm going to skip over it. He's intentionally leaving out his genealogy. This is remarkable. Likewise, number five, Melchizedek seems to be eternal. That's 7-3. So I'm not saying he literally was eternal, but when we read Genesis 14, we never see, and Melchizedek was born, or, and Melchizedek 
died. He has no beginning or end of days. That's the way that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Genesis 14. So it's absent from our text. And yeah, it's an argument from silence. But when the entire book of Genesis is expecting you to, to think, and Melchizedek was born, here's his father and mother, he did this, and then he died. This is a huge, deafening silence. It's probably foreshadowing someone to come who is actually an eternal high priest. Number six, Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. We see this because he received tithes. Right? So all throughout the priestly system, the priest would take 10% from their brothers to fund the priesthood, to fund the temple. Um, the people supported the priesthood by giving tithes. They gave 10% of their income to them. And here, Abram gives a tithe to Melchizedek. This is my little chart. Abraham goes up to Melchizedek with a tithe. Because Abraham tithes to him, we see that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. It's Abraham acknowledging his greatness. Hebrews 7.4 See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. We see his greatness because Abraham tithed to him. Also number seven, we see Melchizedek was greater than Abraham because Melchizedek blessed Abraham, Abram. Um, so a blessing always flows downhill, right? The greater blesses the lesser. The fathers bless the son. The priests bless the sinner. The, the boss blesses his subordinate. A blessing doesn't go uphill, it goes down. So if Melchizedek is blessing Abram, it means Melchizedek is greater than Abram. Verse 7 says, This is beyond dispute because the greater blesses the lesser. And finally, number eight, we see not only is Melchizedek greater than Abraham, he's also greater than all the Levitical priests. So here's, here's the logic. If Levi descended from Abraham, so Levi's that little scribble down here, if he descended from Abraham and Melchizedek blessed Abram, Abram prayed ties to Melchizedek, then because Levi was still in the loins, is the language the text uses, because he's still in the genealogy of Abram, then Melchizedek blessed that whole line following him, including the Levites. And the whole line following Abram blessed, or I'm sorry, tithed to Melchizedek. So when, when Melchizedek blesses the fountain spring, the whole river that flows out of that spring is blessed. So we see, you know, later down the river, we have Levi, the first, not the first priest, the, the main priest is less than Melchizedek because he's in the stream that was already blessed by Melchizedek. So let me, let me summarize this. In the book of Genesis and through all the time of the patriarchs, Abraham is arguably the most significant person in this book. And yet... He paid tithes to Melchizedek, this strange guy that only gets three verses, and Melchizedek blesses him, proving that Melchizedek is greater. So this Melchizedek commands our attention because of several peculiarities about him. He invades our story of the slaughter of the kings. He has no mom or dad, no birth or death. And yet, for the most part, he remains a mystery. Now, by this point, you're like, okay, we got point one. Like, what's the point of all of this? This is more than I've ever wanted to know about Melchizedek.
Which is a good question because our next point is, you know, what's the significance of this? What's the so what of this text? So let's move on to the interpretation or the theological reflection or the so what, whatever kind of category you want to use. To look at the greater priesthood, which we see in 7, 11 through 22. So we're, we're done in Genesis for now. Look at Hebrews 7, 11 with me. And for time's sake, we're only going to get through the first two subpoints here. Um, and then we'll finish up this next week. So first thing I want you to see from this section is that the law and the priesthood are inseparably linked. What you do with one, you have to do with the other. They're two sides of the same coin. Let me prove this from the text. Verse 11. It's through the Levitical priesthood that people receive the law. They're linked to us. For us. I'm still in Genesis. Let me flip here and read this verse. So Hebrews 7.11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, so we have the law and the priesthood linked here. Or we have verse 12. When there's a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. When the priesthood changes, the law has to change as well. They are linked. Or if you go into like verses 18 and 19, it's all about the priesthood. And then 18 comes with like commandments and with law. Like these two are linked. You can go back and forth between talking law and priesthood, which we already know this, right? When you're reading the book of Exodus, when the law starts happening, you get to Exodus 20, you have 10 commandments. Okay, I'm following this. Like, I'm, I'm good with the law. I know these 10. And then you get 21, about the tabernacle. 22, 23, 24, break for a golden calf. Tabernacle, tabernacle, tabernacle. The whole half of the book of Exodus is about the tabernacle because the law and the priesthood, how you worship God, are linked together. They're two sides of the same coin. So that's point one, which affects point two. Jesus is our Melchizedekian priest, the priest following Melchizedek, which thus, thus shows the weakness or the uselessness of the old priesthood, and if it shows the weakness and uselessness of the old priesthood, it also shows the uselessness and the weakness of the law. Good job. We're, we're paying attention. So, so let me show you this. Now, if perfection, this is verse 11 still, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, not after Aaron and those Levitical priests. So he's saying the law, the Levitical priesthood, could not perfect those under it. It could not fully take away sins. It could not say, boldly approach the throne of grace. You couldn't boldly approach God. You had to go through the, the sacrifices and the high priest to approach God. It could never cleanse your guilty, nagging conscience of sin. So the law and the priesthood have them this built-in defect. It's kind of like when you go Christmas shopping for your kids and you buy that perfect gift and, you know, you unwrap it on Christmas morning. It's like accessories and batteries not included. Okay, this is a good gift, but it doesn't have everything that I need. There's these built-in defects to get me to spend more money at Target. Or 
a second illustration to help us get this. It's the week of Ella's first birthday party, Labor Day weekend. We're about to put her birthday cake in the oven, and we realized that the burner on the bottom of our oven had shorted out. The, uh, the burner and the wire that connect them together because the electricity has to flow, so you have to have a full circuit, somehow caught on fire or something. So we have a charred wire and a charred burner, and they're not touching, so no electricity can flow, so no heat gets generated, so you can't make a cake. Um, so I do what anyone does. I pull out the stove, unscrew it, and I see here's a wire, here's a burner, here's a charred piece of metal that should be connecting them. And so I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. So I grab electrical tape, and I just tape that wire to the burner, ignoring the part that burnt up, and I'm sure it's not very safe, but we now have metal touching metal. The circuit's complete and electricity's flowing. Um, so I push it back in between the counters and Chrissy goes, is the stove fixed? And I say, the stove is working, but it's not fixed. Anybody that does their own home repairs knows the difference between working and fixed. I had no intentions of fixing my stove. It's still under warranty. The Samsung guy is going to come out and he's going to fix my stove. But I need something working so that we can make a gluten and dairy-free cake because I'm not willing to sell my kidney to buy a gluten-free, dairy-free cake on a holiday weekend. Um, it's working, but it's not fixed. We had the same thing in the law. It works to get people to dwell with God, but it's not the ultimate solution. We're waiting for someone else. We're waiting for a new priest to come and fix us. So this logic makes sense, but where are we getting this logic from? Where do we see in Genesis 14, hey, we need another priest like Melchizedek? Because it seems like here's one guy, he's important, but there's nothing in the text that makes me think, and there's another one coming after him. In the, in the scriptures, Melchizedek is mentioned three times. We have him in Genesis 14, we have him in the book of Hebrews, mostly chapter 7, and then we have him in Psalm 110. So we've already quoted Psalm 110 a couple of times in this book. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Um, and this Lord, we have Yahweh said to my Lord, which if this was, you know, Bobby writing a psalm, he'd be like, Yahweh said to my king, David, sit at my right hand. But the problem is David's writing this psalm. David's boss is Yahweh. There's no one in between. So when he says the Lord said to my Lord, he's talking about the Messiah to come. Yahweh said to the Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. You are going to be the triumphant Messiah warrior. But then in verse 4 of that chapter, we have priestly king or priestly language. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So according to Psalm 110, the Messiah is going to be this victorious warrior and this eternal Melchizedekian priest. So apparently, yeah, if you're taking notes, Melchizedekian, enjoy that. <laughs> you should have seen spell check this week as I was rolling out this lesson. So apparently King David wakes up one morning. He walks downstairs in his palace. He makes himself a pot of coffee, sits down, opens his Torah to have morning devotions. And he opens up. He's in Genesis 14. He reads of the slaughter of the kings. And then he gets to verse 18. Melchizedek shows up. And he thinks, this guy's strange. Like, he's a king priest that pops up for three verses and then disappears. 
like, what's up with this guy? But then he's like, well, I've heard in Sunday school one time that intrusions into the story are important, so maybe I should meditate on him a second. So he sits back and he starts meditating on Genesis 14 on Melchizedek, and he thinks, he's ruling in Salem, in Jerusalem. I'm ruling in Jerusalem. Under David, the kingdom was moved from Horeb to Jerusalem. So this guy's my predecessor. He's doing what I'm doing now. He was a king of Salem. And, the, and he was a priest of the Most High God, which strikes him funny. Because the reason David is ruling in Jerusalem is because Saul was cast off from being king. Why? Because Saul tried to act like a priest instead of acting like a king. The law makes it clear, a king has to stay in his lane. A king can't make sacrifices. A king can't do the priest's job. The priests do priestly things. The king does kingly things. They don't ever cross. And yet, this mysterious Melchizedek, 400 years before Moses and Aaron and the establishment of the formal priesthood, is both a king and a priest. Which makes David think, okay, maybe the separation between kingdom and priest is not an eternal separation, Maybe it's not absolute. Maybe it's just for right now. I'm not going to break the law. But maybe what the law says is temporary and there's something greater than this happening. Perhaps when the Messiah comes, he's not just going to be a victorious warrior king greater than me. He's also going to be the perfect high priest who brings us to God because he's not like a Levitic priest. He's like a Melchizedekian priest. And so he writes Psalm 110 saying that the current priesthood that they're under is not good enough. When he writes Psalm 110, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He's saying the Old Testament's fine for now, but the times, they are a change in. The kingdom and the priesthood will be united in one under this great Messiah Melchizedekian king. By understanding Genesis 14, David realizes that the Levitical priest is not permanent, that somebody greater like Melchizedek is coming, that he's going to unite the, te- the, the, the temple and the palace in one person by being a king and a priest, which is a thing that later prophets will pick up on, like um, Zechariah 6.13, which gets us back to Hebrews 7. I'm running out of time. We're going to go like four minutes late, but that's okay. Um, Hebrews 7. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? We need a better priest than the law can provide because the law cannot make perfect anyone. We need someone like Melchizedek, a king priest without a birth or a death who reigns eternally to be our perfect priest, which we have in Jesus Christ. And so when the priesthood changes, the law is going to change with it. When the priesthood changes, when we go from Levi to Melchizedek, everything else is going to have to change. But we'll get into that next week. Um, But before we break, okay, so we had a lot of information Why does this matter? Next week is all application based on what I said today. Um, But let me just give us three or four quick reasons. First, what's the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your mind. How do we love the Lord with our mind and soul and strength? Surely it includes engaging our minds to understand God's word, to dig into God's word, to worship him with our mind. I kind of hope that your mind's a little bit blown right now. You're like, okay, that was too much information. I need to process. I need to chew. I need to digest this. Because we want to worship God with all of our mental faculties. I want you to be in awe of the wisdom of God's eternal plan that there was Melchizedek's day that Moses wrote about in a particular way so that David could read it in a particular way and write prophecies in Psalm 110 so that Jesus could come and fulfill these prophecies so that the author of Hebrews could come and say that Jesus is the greater Melchizedek so that we could understand this and worship God. I want us to worship and love God with our mind. So I hope that you're praising God for his wisdom in setting up history and the text this way. Second, three quarters of your Bible is Old Testament. And so often we're like, I don't know what to do with that. Like, we have a psalm. We have Genesis 14. We have some kings killing each other and some slaves being rescued. I want us to be able to say, man, the Bible does really point to Jesus. Maybe it's not as simple as saying, and Jesus is kind of like Melchizedek. Maybe there's a few more steps to get there. But I want you to see from Scripture that the Bible is actually all about Jesus, that scripture proves us. It shows us how to read Genesis and Psalm. So we can take this pattern and apply it to our own Bible reading. And third, the, the main point of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better than the old covenant. So hold fast to him. We just proved from the Old Testament itself that the Old Testament is incomplete and that we need one who is better. The Old Testament, if you turn back there, there's nothing for you. We've, so we have this gracious thing in Christ that we have someone who came, who fulfilled everything that we lacked in the Old Testament. So for the original hearers, don't go back to Judaism. There's nothing there. Judaism is setting up a trajectory to be fulfilled in Christ. For us, don't leave this Christ. He's the culmination. He didn't show up in 0 AD and start something brand new. But even back from the time of the patriarchs, God was working out a plan to get us to Jesus. So don't turn back on the benefits of having Jesus as our high priest. Why in the world would you turn from someone who's the fulfillment of everything back to the shadow of things to come? Don't turn away from the glories of Christ. And number four, it's Christmas. I'm going late, but I love Christmas. So <clears throat> one of my favorite songs that we sing, Karin Seckis are not in here, well, Zachary is, but you probably don't know what we're singing today. You might. It's like songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, or Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus, because they get this longing language. I think sometimes we miss the glory of the incarnation because we think history started at 0 AD. And we miss David in approximately 1400 BC saying, I need a Melchizedekian priest and having 1,400 years of waiting, of longing, so that when Christ comes into the world, it's not just this, you know, things were okay, and now things turned amazing. We have 
centuries. We have millennia of longing, 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 longing with fulfillment coming in Christ. So as we think of incarnation, as we think of Christ being born, remember that it's not, you know, the beginning of the story there. We're in the middle of a bigger story. So we can celebrate even deeper, even more when we think about this, knowing the longing that has happened even since the days of Melchizedek. So let me pray for us and then we will uh, dismiss, walk fast because I took too much time. Let me pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, you have given us texts that are difficult to understand, but you have also given us the Holy Spirit to guide us into understanding, to, to show us what you want us to know. So Lord, I pray that we would worship you because of our time in Genesis and in Psalms and in Hebrews this morning, that we would see the glories of Christ, that we would see him as the fulfillment of so many godly people's longings and that we would worship him. And as we are tempted to not worship, as we're tempted to turn away, maybe not back to the Jewish law, but uh, trying to justify ourselves or thinking that our sins are not a big deal. Um, I pray that you would call to mind the greatness of this Jesus, that we would stay faithful to him, that we would long for his return to be in a kingdom ruled by this perfect king of righteousness, this perfect king of peace. Lord, we um, pray that through the uh, worship service today, that you would put this longing for Christ in our hearts, that we would um, worship you and worship him all the more. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.